you know, it probably felt like whiplash. You know, the kind where you're in your sitting there, minding your own business, and then you get rear-ended, got jostled and didn't see it coming. Kind of like back when this guy named Saul is traveling throughout Judea, persecuting the church. He's bringing up murderous threats, putting believers in Jesus in prison, and then Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road, transforms his life, and the one who once was persecuting the church is now preaching the gospel. It left the people in Damascus shell-shocked. Whiplash. Can't believe this. That's similar to what we see happening in Mark chapter 6. Jesus has come home to his hometown of Nazareth, and while he is teaching in the synagogue, the people couldn't believe what they were hearing. Thank you, buddy. It felt like whiplash. Jesus, the kid next door, is speaking with such wisdom, and he's claiming to be the Messiah. I want you to notice how the people respond to Jesus in Mark chapter 6. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're studying the book of Mark as a faith family and seeing Jesus on the move. He has left his ministry headquarters in Capernaum for the last time. And we see a significant amount of time that he has spent in this town. He has been teaching about the kingdom, casting out demons, and healing the sick. He then heads 25 miles southwest to his hometown of Nazareth, which is about the distance from Westwood to Jemison. So I want you to see what this kind of looks like. In fact, up on the screen is a picture of Christy and I with Nazareth in the background. Now, back when Jesus was there, this was a small town of just a few hundred people. Now it's a, a growing metropolis. But there... In Luke chapter 4, we, when Jesus was there uh, the, for the first time in Nazareth, he claimed to be the promised Messiah. And the people got so angry that Jesus claimed to be the promised Messiah. The next picture I want you to see is they took him right here to this spot to throw him off the cliff to kill him. Because he claimed to be the promised Messiah. Now, these are the people who knew Jesus growing up. These are the people who were very familiar with who Jesus was. And they wanted to see him thrown off the cliff. They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be this promised Messiah. But Jesus walked right past them. And though on this final trip to Nazareth, the people did not try to kill Jesus this time like they did last time, they still had not softened their hearts. Look with me in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Jesus left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. I think it's important. Press pause there. Notice that the the disciples followed Jesus, not the other way around. Okay, when it comes to your walk with the Lord, Jesus does not follow you. You follow him. But what's interesting is that as these disciples are following Jesus, he is modeling for them what they're about to do. And we'll study this next week of what's next to come for them as they're about to go into different villages and be doing exactly what Jesus does and yet not receive any commendation or wealth for some of them. Verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. 
Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Jesus is modeling for his disciples what is about to come for them as they are about to be sent out all throughout different villages proclaiming the kingdom. But here is Jesus in Nazareth, his hometown, modeling for them what it's going to look like. And there he is in a place where they knew him since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. Okay, they saw him grow up with his brothers and sisters in Nazareth. And yet when he came claiming to be the Messiah, they rejected him. Notice how they responded to Jesus' homecoming. The first thing I want you to see is that the people of Nazareth were shocked but not submissive. They were shocked but not submissive. As Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, the people were, verse 2, astonished by his teaching. That word astonished, it means to strike uh, with a blow, with a, with a struck of amazement. So in, in, in our culture, it would be like, like that. Jesus' teaching is mind-blowing. The people were in utter shock of what is coming out of his mouth. Indeed, Jesus is the greatest preacher of all time. And when we read the content of Jesus' teaching all throughout all four Gospels, we see his uncanny ability to teach with such authority and clarity. Audiences were spellbound as he taught truths about the kingdom. After preaching the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, the Bible says the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the scribes. So as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, the people were shocked, but they refused to submit to his teaching. Secondly, they were offended, but not obedient. They were offended, but not obedient. Verse 3, they were offended by him. The Jews were so taken aback by Jesus' teaching that they asked him five questions. Now, these five questions were not questions in which they were looking for more information. They were not curious and wanting to grow from what he was about to say. These five questions are indictments. These five questions were slanderous in nature. They're seeking to undercut the validity and the authority of Jesus. They're not here trying to absorb his incredible knowledge and wisdom. They are attacking his character. That word for offended, verse 3, is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal. This is a word that was often used by builders when they were selecting stones for construction. They would examine the quality of the stones before they would use them. If there were flaws in the stones, they would reject them. Sometimes when I'm doing a project at the house, I'll go to a hardware store and I'll get some lumber. And I'll go to the lumber section and I'll pull out a piece of wood, a two by four, and I'll pick it up long ways and I'll look down it and peek with one eye to see if there's any curvature or bending in it. And if the wood is warped, I will discard it. I will get rid of it. There is an offense in this that I cannot use. Uh, It's often been said of Michelangelo that he himself would go to different rock quarries and select marble for his sculpting. 
And if any marble had any kind of imperfections, he would get rid of it. Well, that's the, what that word here means, an offense. It's a scandal. Jesus is offensive, and they want to get rid of him. See, Jesus is the suffering servant who was despised and rejected by men. He was rejected by his nation. He was rejected by his hometown, and he was even rejected by his family. Quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, and applying it to himself, Jesus says in Mark 12, verse 10, Have you never read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus is the scandal of whom the Jews took offense. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Yet in the infinite wisdom of God, he has become the chief cornerstone. Question, is Jesus a scandal for you? Are you offended by Jesus? Rather, furthermore, are you embarrassed by Jesus? Do you get red in the face when you start talking about his teachings? Are you ashamed of him at work, at the water cooler, at the coffee pot? When you're on the ball field or in the classroom, do you shy away of claiming to know Jesus? Do your neighbors know you as a passionate follower of Jesus Christ? Or do they see you as someone who's not really into this whole Jesus thing? You see, if you find your heart as one who's balking at Jesus, not fully surrendered, not fully committed to him, then pray. See, oh God, would you give me a passion for your glory? Make me unashamed of your gospel so that whether I'm at work, I'm at school with family, neighbors, co-workers, that I might represent you well and declare boldly that I'm following hard after you. But you see, the Nazarenes here, they're offended by Jesus. Why? Well, let me show you four reasons right here from the text. I want you to see first, the people were offended because Jesus was uneducated. He was uneducated. Verse 2, the Jews asked, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? They knew Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. He wasn't a rabbi. Jesus never got formal training. He never went to seminary. And the people knew this. There's no way that Jesus we knew who grew up right down the street could be this smart. And yet this uneducated Jesus that these people thought they, these people who thought he was uneducated, someone who was not qualified to be a rabbi, he is the one who, Luke 6, 8, he knew people's thoughts and what they were thinking. He, Matthew 12, 25, he knew what people were thinking. In fact, Jesus says about himself in Revelation 2, 23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. You see, to these Nazarenes, Jesus is unqualified to be the Messiah because he hasn't been trained, and they were offended by him. Secondly, the people were offended because Jesus was blue collar. Says verse three, isn't this the carpenter? That word for carpenter means someone who works with wood or metal or stone. Jesus was a handyman. He was a construction worker. He grew up under the tutelage of his earthly father, Joseph, on how to construct and build things using his hands. Now, isn't that remarkable? The one who made the cosmos, the one who constructed the infrastructure of the world, humbled himself under the tutelage of Joseph to learn how to make tables and chairs. 
Indeed, it's remarkable that the one who used hammer and nails on a piece of wood, eventually he took the hammer and nails on a piece of wood. The one who's gone to prepare a place for us, the architect of the celestial heavenly city, the builder of the new Jerusalem, here he is being mocked, verse 3, because he's a blue-collar worker. Thirdly, we see they were offended because of Jesus' scandalous birth. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter, watch this, the son of Mary? Now, some might consider the absence of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, and his name in verse 3, as a reference to his death, okay, which is probably true. Joseph has probably died by this point because he's not mentioned anywhere else after the birth narrative we see in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. But even if he was dead, he still would have been referenced. They would have referred to him as Jesus, the son of Joseph. You see, biblically and historically, when referencing someone specifically, the connection point is always made with the father. You go back to 1 Chronicles and you see the genealogies. It's always the son of and it's the father's name. Even if you go into Matthew chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus, it is this person, the son of, and it mentions the father's name. Kind of like in Matthew 1.16, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So the connection is always made with the father. But I believe this question, verse 3, is a cheap shot at Jesus. They were taunting him as the illegitimate child to an immoral woman. They were discrediting Jesus by referencing the scandal of his birth. Now, based upon his, how his hometown is responding to him in Mark 6, Jesus probably grew up with a stigma that his mom got pregnant out of wedlock. Now, we know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But for the Jews, Jesus is the illegitimate child of Mary. So from their perspective, who was Jesus to tell them anything? Fourthly, they were offended because of Jesus' familiar family. Verse 3, he is the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his, aren't his sisters here with us? What made this so difficult for the people of Nazareth is they grew up knowing his family. They saw Jesus grow up as a little boy down the street. They saw him mature before their eyes as a teenager and as a young adult man. Being in a small town of a few hundred people. The people knew his brothers. They knew his sisters, verse 3. Anybody here grow up in a small town where everybody knows each other? You know what this is like then. Where there, you, you know things about different families. Word spreads fast in a small town. People know stuff. They share stuff. They'll go and share stories about so-and-so down the street. And hey, did you hear about them and these and those? That's what this is. This is where Jesus grew up. And not only did he grow up here where people were very familiar with him and his family. Don't forget, Jesus' own family rejected him. You dig into the scriptures further, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe upon him until after his resurrection. In fact, when you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that's where you find Mary and Jesus' brothers. They're in the upper room with the disciples praying. And we see later on that James, his brother, becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Furthermore, his brother Jude writes a book called 
Jude, the second to last book of the New Testament. So it's amazing what the Lord did. But to these Nazarenes, it would be foolish to believe upon Jesus because they saw him grow up. They knew his family growing up in the community. The people were familiar with Jesus, but they did not love Jesus. They did not submit to him as Lord. They did not follow him as, his, as their master. Y'all, there is danger in familiarity. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you've grown up going to church. You're familiar with the stories, but you haven't submitted to Jesus as Lord. There's danger in being familiar with Jesus and not submitting to Jesus. That's what's happening right here in Mark 6. These people grew up around Jesus. They knew him. They were like, you're the Messiah? You're the promised one? We don't think so. You see, they were so familiar with him, they completely missed him. And you are in eternal danger if you are familiar with Jesus and yet do not submit to his lordship. You are in danger of being around Christian things. Hearing the gospel, knowing these things, and yet totally missing the points. Last month, I had lunch with a man who came to our church. He was visiting and uh, pastors in the Tennessee area and said, hey, I'd love to get lunch with you. And I'm like, man, that'd be great. So we sit down and start talking. I say, tell me your story. And his story was, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to the ministry. And I wasn't born again until after I had been a pastor for 12 years. He said, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. You can be in danger of being so familiar with Christian things and totally miss Jesus. You see, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 is a warning. That you can grow up in Jesus' hometown, you can see what he was like growing up, and still completely miss him. And here is this hometown of Jesus, and they are offended by him. And they know his family, if they've become so familiar with him that they have completely missed him altogether. If you're playing the church game, on the last day, You cannot be saved through your church attendance. You cannot be saved by trusting in your own good works. You cannot be saved by trusting in anything that you have done. You see, followers of Jesus do not trust in our works. We trust in the works of Jesus for us. We look to the cross where Jesus gladly and willingly and joyfully laid down his life for us. And we believe upon Jesus and we submit to his lordship. He is our king. We follow him, not the other way around. And the danger of especially growing up here in the American South is being around Christian things and totally missing Jesus. Maybe for some of you, you've, you're starting, you've already believed the gospel You've already trusted in Jesus, but you're finding your heart becoming tepid, lukewarm. You're finding yourself becoming familiar with Jesus. You're no longer convicted by his word. You're no longer shocked and surprised by his miracles. You don't weep when you think about the cross. If you don't find your emotions being transformed as you study the word, you are in danger.
It's amazing as we study this person and work of Jesus. If we find our hearts becoming so familiar with Scripture that we lose the shock and awe and the beauty and the majesty of who He is, we're in danger. So we must hit our knees and say, God, give me a fresh word. Give me a fresh perspective. Help me to see you for who you are. And if you're not careful, familiarity can breed contempt. That's what we see happening here in Nazareth. The community... They're asking, who does Jesus think he is? He's, he thinks he's the Messiah. We've known him for three decades. How can this neighborhood kid be the Christ? We know who you are. You're a nobody. Coming from a nowhere town, with a nowhere family, with a nowhere job. Who do you think you are, Jesus? But isn't this the wisdom of God? That God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? God takes the weak to shame the strong, 1 Corinthians 1. Maybe you look at your life and you're, you're thinking, I, I don't have degrees after my name or letters after my name. I don't have degrees on the wall. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm a blue-collar worker. I work with my hands. I have a scandalous birth story. I have a messy family. I have a messy upbringing. I grew up in a town where everybody knew my past and my family. My family wasn't prominent. We weren't wealthy or influential. Well, don't look now. You're in good company with Jesus. And God loves to display his glory to the world, not through the strong, but through the weak. Even those rejected by their hometown. You see, for the people of Nazareth, they were, verse 3, offended by Jesus. And that's always the case. The world is offended by Jesus. Pluralists are offended when Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. Religious people are offended by Jesus when he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Narcissists are offended by Jesus when he says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. All of us in our flesh are offended by Jesus because he calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe upon him. Listen, Jesus is offensive, y'all. And we must be ready as followers of Jesus. If we're going to be faithful to preach the, the gospel, we have to be ready to preach the offense of the cross. The offense of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, we, we mustn't take the offense out of the gospel in order to be liked by the world. You cannot take the offense out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me, if everyone agrees with you, you're doing something wrong. If we're going to be faithful, with, faithful to Jesus, we are going to be hated. But don't look now. He was hated first. But far too many believers find themselves right here saying, am I going to remain faithful to Jesus on this point? And the question is, fear of man. Do I want the praise of people or do I want the praise of God? You can't have both. Jesus is offensive. 
And we as followers of Jesus must be prepared for the world to hate us because we hold fast to the offense of the gospel. Now, we don't go out looking for fights. We don't go out looking to be disagreeable. On the contrary, we are to be a winsome witness for Jesus. And yet we must be ready and willing to be rejected by men just like Jesus. We must be ready and willing to be hated by people just like Jesus. We must be ready and willing to be humiliated by the in crowd just like Jesus. Church, let's make sure that Jesus is the offense, not us. While the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive, believers shouldn't be. That's a fine line. But my concern is sometimes we become the offense. Our opinions, self-righteousness. We find ways where we sometimes can be rude. We can be curmudgeons. That's not the way of the cross. Jesus is the offense. Let's let the gospel do what the gospel does. Well, unfortunately for the people of Nazareth, they were offended by Jesus, but they were not obedient. Thirdly, the people were faithless and not faithful. Verse 6, and he was amazed at their unbelief. That word for amazed, it means to marvel at, to wonder at, like, wow. I've shown myself to you. I've taught with authority and clarity. I've performed miracles, and yet you still do not believe. You see, because of their response, Jesus was not able to do a miracle there except lay his hands on a few sick people and to heal them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus withholds his power of healing due to their lack of faith. Jesus had the power to heal. He had the power to cast out demons. He had the power to raise the dead, and yet he didn't. The people had hardened their hearts. They were, in essence, agnostics. The evidence was right there in front of them, and yet they refused to believe upon Jesus. Maybe you're here today, and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Christ yet. And you're sitting there thinking, you know, if I could just get some evidence, if I could just get some proof, then I will believe. You're, you're, you're an agnostic. You're kind of like, you know, I'm just not quite sure yet, but if someone could just show me and prove it to me. Well, don't look now. That's Mark 1 through 5. You've already had opportunities where miracles have been proven to you. He has raised the dead. He has calmed the storms. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick. It's amazing. He has performed it. You want clear teachings? Go to Mark 1 through 5. You see the teachings of Jesus where he proves himself to be who he is. But you must submit your heart to his lordship. And there are far too many who are too prideful to humble themselves because to say yes to Jesus means you've got to say no to yourself. You've got to deny yourself. And the flesh, the old nature, wants nothing to do with that. This is why for you to follow Jesus, you must humble yourself and get low. So Kenneth, what am I to do? It's the impact point, it's this. Do not reject Jesus, but believe Upon him. You see, Mark 6 is a warning. Do not harden your heart. Eternity is at stake. 
And what's heartbreaking here is quite simply the people of Nazareth, they were too offensive or too offended. They were too familiar, too prideful to see Jesus for who he was. So Kenneth, what's our response is to believe, trust, give your life to Jesus, submit to his lordship. This is a warning. Do not pardon your heart. Beloved, on that great day when Jesus comes back, will he be amazed at our lack of faith? I sure hope not. You and I, we can prepare for that day now by daily believing upon Jesus, saying, you are king, you are Lord, and I follow you.